This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You need to show people the worst possible harm that that negligence could have caused, because that's what the case is about. I'm asking you to do is to focus on what you can control, because that's where the power lies. The Dalai Lama uh, has a saying that in the face of anger, justice evaporates. If you can't focus group it, you have to be very, very critical of your process. The facts aren't good. You can't create a miracle. We can agree to disagree and be zealous advocates for our clients. Quit worrying about looking perfect. You're not going to. That'll come in time, but you can still be an effective litigator. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. Today I'm here with my partner, Mallory Peacock, and we are going to talk about getting ready for trial. Uh, Mallory, that's very timely for us because we were supposed to be in trial this week, and the judge bumped us to next week, and then I'm getting ready for another one in February, and then you and I have another one in February. Yes, it is already a year full of trials, and it just just started. (laughs) It's fun, but it's it's a lot to it. And so I wanted to talk to people about, you know, we talk a lot about what to do at trial, uh, but you don't hear a lot of people talking about what you do to get ready for trial during the the weeks or months leading up. To, uh, you know, not to talk about answering discovery or taking depots. I'm talking about just the logistics of getting your case and yourself ready. Yeah, um, I think that it's. It's very individualized um, what you need to do to psychologically get ready for trial, but I think that everybody has sort of a list of all the things that they need to do before a trial. That's just sort of your basics. If you don't do this, your trial is going to go to crap pretty quickly. So <laughs> I think we should talk about both of those things because they're uh, interesting. Yeah, let's start with because your list is different than mine, and I think part of it is because I grew up in the law. You know, my video editing was being up to four in the morning uh, at trial with two VCRs <laughs> trying to stop and, and paste. And, you know, we didn't have computer video editing, and I didn't have the money to hire somebody. And, you know, again, I'd be up to two or three in the morning copying my exhibits. Uh, whereas you've had the luxury of being at a more stable firm. Uh, and you're also just more, you're less of a procrastinator than I am. Yeah, for me, being organized is everything. I like everything organized um, to the point where I know some of the staff probably thinks I'm a little nutty, but I like to know exactly where everything is. I like to know what we have. I like everything to be labeled and in order so that way when we're at trial, the worst thing for me is to be in a flow or doing something and then not being able to find an exhibit or not being able to figure out how to work my audio on my deposition video or I want all that, all that ahead of time and I don't like the stress of doing things at the last minute. And I will say, having now trying cases with you is so much less stressful uh, because you are so organized. And then so much more stressful when I try a case with someone else because they, you know, they just haven't had the experience you and I have had working together, yeah. and they don't necessarily do all the know to do all the things that you'll just automatically do. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have a good system because we've worked together for a long time, and we know what each other likes and what we need, and you know, all, even down to when we're cross examining a witness that we both know we can't tap each other on the shoulder or try to whisper in someone's ear. We have a note system that we use with post-its and there's a yeah. whole system for it, but it's because we've been doing it together for a while. So we got it down. Well, let's talk about the logistics then, because what's some of the logistical things that you just have to do to feel comfortable getting in? The really basic things for me are 
getting all my exhibits in order. Um, that's sort of one of the very first things that I like to do. And this, of course, is after you've already done the discovery. You already have, this is like your 30 days before trial, before the discovery deadline. What are all of my exhibits? What do I need to prove my case? What are the jury instructions? Kind of gathering all that in one place and looking at it and making sure I have a game plan with the goal in mind of getting to a one or two page document that's our order of proof for trial that has a list of all of our witnesses, has all of the exhibits, and it has all of the points that we need to make with those exhibits and witnesses. And I think one mistake a lot of lawyers make is they put every possible piece of paper from the case on their exhibit list. Uh, and I see it a lot of times with defense firms. I mean, it's just they just list all this junk on there. You know, I think we need to think if we're sponsoring it as something we actually want the jury to see or we need to protect the record. And I think the order, a lot of people just have like a random order of exhibits. I mean, if I have 100 exhibits in a case, I don't really believe the jury's going to go back and read all 100 of them. Right. So I want like exhibits one through five, especially one that's on the top of the stack, to be the first thing I want them to see when they walk in the jury room. Well, and it's going to be, um, I think, the focus of your case. And so, for instance, if the focus of your case is trying to get the medical bills in your case, then your first exhibit is a summary of all the medical bills and all the medical treatment in the past, right? But you're focusing the jury on that. So if that is not the focus of your case, if the focus of your case is the non-economic harm or what the defendant did wrong, maybe you think more about your first exhibit being a really bad crash picture or the police report that faults the, you know, the driver or something like that so that the jury knows when they open the binder, oh, this is what we're focusing on. This is the focus of the case. Right. And if you have like 200 exhibits your expert took, you don't need, to, I mean, 200 photos, you don't need to put all 200 in. Find the ones that make your points and you have the other ones there with you just in case you need them. Uh, the other thing I do that I think really helps and, and when I try to other people, they don't always do this is I get, you know, we have electronic filing anyway so we start off with electronic copy but if you don't get everything scanned in or if it's a picture get you know original jpeg original format and just have a folder on your computer labeled exhibits you know one two three four five and then with a description of them so that when you're in trial you can just click on your laptop and look at it and not have to go digging through papers and notebooks and looking for things because i don't know how many times that someone said something and we just pop it up on the screen on the TV and blow up that page and point at something. It's like, nah, that's not what it says. Well, and the worst thing to have happen is you know they said something else and you can't find it in the middle of trial because you're not organized, you don't know where things are, and you know you know that somewhere in this file contradicts what they're saying on the stand and you can't find it fast enough, and it's it, it's very stressful. <laughs> or in middle age if you can't read it. Uh, that's other, <laughs> you know, men and women, when you start getting your mid-40s, you need to start uh, getting your eyes checked because... You and I were in trial, and I didn't realize I had presbyopia, or old person's eyes. Mm -hmm. And they had printed uh, these depots for a page, and I knew the page in line from my 14-point font outline of when the defendant said something different. And so I'm asking the defendant, isn't it true in your deposition you said, and I'm reading it, and I can't read the damn thing. You said, and I had to go, Mallory, what did he say? And have you read it for me? Uh, so, you know, that's in the middle of trial is not a good time to learn that your eyes are bad. The other things I've learned the hard way, uh, while you're out of town for trial or when you're getting ready to start a trial is not a good time to find out your clothes don't fit you right because you've gained or lost weight. Mm -hmm. uh, I've never had a case where I've had all oh, my clothes too big when I started a trial. But I remember, you know, I started off in shape and not fat when I started practicing law, and then I've gained weight since. 
But when I was early in that process, I remember, you know, I just wasn't quite wanting to admit that I needed to move up a pant size. And I'm in trial, and there's a jury there, and I squat down to pick up a box, and the back of my pants ripped. And, you know, I'm having to make sure I have my back to the jury. Oh my I have my my jacket down. <laughs> so now, I don't know if I'd be able to finish. You know, <laughs> I would what, have to take a break. <laughs> you know, you're in trial, you're in trial. Yeah. What do you do? I mean, so, you know, we got through it. But, uh, you know, I don't think any of the jurors saw my tidy whities that day. <laughs> but I don't even remember what happened in the case. It was, this was a long, this is the 90s. Mm-hmm. It was a long time ago. But so one of the things I do now is, you know, two weeks out, I try on clothes mm-hmm go to the store if I need to go to the dry cleaner Uh, yeah Uh, but just those little things you know it's crazy but you have to think of them in advance you know I was by prescription for my eyes still good uh do my clothes still fit me so it's confession time about your eyes I told your assistant for this trial um to take your glasses your readers off your desk and go buy four identical pairs of those readers and put them in the trial box in case you lost them during the trial. Thank you. <laughs> well, she, you took them with you, so she couldn't find them. It never happened, but I did I did tell her to do that. <laughs> you see, that's that's partnership. That's that's knowing each other and, and doing well. So those little things make a difference. The other thing is we spend so much time working on ourselves and our presentations and our graphics, but most of the trial, there's someone other than us talking. Mm-hmm. And... You know, when is the right time to start getting the witnesses ready? Yeah, that's a really hard question because it's so case-specific um, and it's so client-specific. Um, it's It depends on what you need your client to do. So you need to start by figuring, or the, all the witnesses really, what is it that you're putting them on the stand for? You never want to not know the answer to that question before you put someone on the stand. Right. Um, and you want to have a really specific outline for what are the goals and how do I keep this as short as possible for I think for every single witness right the longer a witness is on the stand the less likely um, people are going to listen to the witness and then the more opportunity there is for them to screw up or say something weird or you know and so I think that for everybody it's different you've already started the prep process with your client from the beginning I would imagine you've had many conversations about the case about your strategies for prepping them for deposition, you've talked about what kind of stories you should tell, how to tell stories, you've already had these conversations. So it'll be old hat for them by the time of trial, but for all of your la- your other witnesses, it might not be. And there's also witnesses that are just unpreppable. Uh, but you need to know that in advance. What you don't want is the night before you're going to put this witness on is the first time you meet them and you realize this police officer is not preppable. He is not going to listen to anything that you say. He is going to do what he's going to do, and that is read from the report word for word or whatever it is. Right. Um, but you don't want to be finding that out the night before you put them on. So, um, but sometimes you can't get them to talk to you before that. So it's just, it, it's a complex question. It is. But to me, the biggest struggle is lay witnesses, because you can kind of get your client to keep working with you and working with you and working with you. It's their case, and uh, you know they get annoyed after a while. But the problem with lay witnesses is that if I knew that my trial date was going to be, we're set for trial and it's really going to go 100% of the time on that date, that I could go meet with them two or three times starting like a month in advance. Uh, the problem is that people don't have anything to gain. They're not going to get any money on the case. Right. They're doing this because they're a coworker, a friend, a family member. And then the trial keeps getting bumped. And you've asked them to come meet with you five, six, seven times. They're not going to do it anymore. And they're just going to stop participating in the process. So, you know, unfortunately with those people, other than, you know, we try to meet them early on, uh, you know, often we're not really truly prepping them 
until we are know for sure we're going to go. Like we had met with our, we had met some of these people, but we actually were going to do the prep for our lay witnesses on Monday, and we're going to put them uh, this week, and we're going to put them on on Wednesday. Right. Uh, and now we're going to go meet with them on Sunday. Uh, and some of these people say, "Well, why are you doing the last minute?" Well, one is a wrongful death case. These are people that know the widow. Uh, you know, it's not the, complex the, testimony. They're not going to say, "Oh, she was fine." So we don't. You know, we're not that concerned about what they're going to say. We just need to, to work with them a little bit on finding some specific stories that are good to tell and, and how to tell those stories. But I'm just worried that if we had, you know, as many times as this trial has been moved against our will, that we would have them just not bothering to show up anymore because they would have taken time off from work. They would have taken time away to meet with us so many times. And they just quit doing it. So it's just, you know, ideally you'd meet with everybody months in advance and you'd rehearse. And, you know, we've even had it where we brought people to the courtroom when it's empty and practiced. But the reality is because trials in at least our jurisdictions get bumped so many times and it's really unpredictable, you can't always do that because you'll lose your witness by the time you really get to go. Yeah, and even in this trial, the, the cast of characters has changed um, this, this isn't the first time the trial got bumped. Um, it's been bumped a few times before, and we've been getting ready for this trial. And the cast of characters has changed since the first time we were going to go to trial. So the people that we met with this last weekend are not the same people that I met with six months ago when we were going to go to trial on this case. So, yeah. And it probably won't be the same people that show up on Sunday. Because so. you just, people will only show up so many times. Right. Uh, so you have to keep that in mind. As far as our own rehearsal, I mean, when do you start getting ready for your opening, your voir dire, your closing? Yeah, I mean, ideally, you would start doing it at the beginning of the case, but that's not really feasible. I mean, that's not, that that's what, when you go to CLEs, people say stuff like that, like, well, I have already written all the jury instructions, and I've already written my opening and my voir dire by the third week that I've had the, I mean, people say crazy things at CLEs, and that's just not feasible on every case. So you actually, for me, I need to pretty much be knowing that the case is not going to settle, it's ready to go to trial, um, and usually at that point, it's maybe 30 days before the trial is when the discovery deadline is passed. We've already mediated. It's not It's not going to settle. We're getting ready. But even then, um, to write out a formal opening and to write out a voir dire, it honestly happens usually kind of the week before. In some of the more complex cases, it's happening a couple of weeks before. But, you know, you still have the rest of your cases that you have to work on. And you still have all of the other whirlwind things in your life. Um, and so it's frankly, it's tough. It's tough to find time. And it takes a lot of time and focused energy to write a good opening and to come up with a good board eye script. Well, the other problem is in, in your opening, you, you need to know what your trial story is going to be. Right. And, and we plan out our trial stories well in advance and, and we're, and they're a work in progress, but just because, you know, it's like a hypothesis. We have, this is what our hypothetical trial story was going to be. And then we have to test that about what, what did we learn in discovery? And then we're doing focus groups. Do people buy our theory? And, and I'll give you an example. You and I are getting ready for a trial uh, later in February, and we worked really hard uh, with a consultant before we did any discovery, and we came up with a theory of the case, and we had all these great graphics, and we had a plan. And now that we've developed all the evidence, we do not think that is the most compelling story and the best way to win. So we have come up with a better, what we think is a better story, but it means yeah. we... We're not going to use a bunch of posters. We have the opening plan we had from a year ago, and that's when we actually did start thinking did about what the opening would be over a year before we did our first depot. Right. But it's not the same opening that we're going to do after doing all the discovery. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And so it, it depends on how much time you can really focus. I mean, I don't want to be 
unrealistic. We can say what everybody's goals are, but realistically, for most of the cases that everybody tries, most people don't have a two or three case docket. Right. Um, and we don't. Uh, and unless you have a two or three case docket for every single case of yours, you can't start working on the opening um, the day you get the case. Well, right. we did that on that case. It's because it's a big case and it's an important case. Not that they're not all important, but it's one of our the biggest cases at our firm. It got a little bit more attention in terms of doing the opening right away and all that kind of stuff. So. But even then, it's not going to be anything like the opening we're going to give in three weeks. Right, right. And it's changed so much since the very beginning. And I think that that's also the danger of doing something very early is that it is very hard to not stay committed to what you decided the case was about originally. I mean, you put all this work into a certain theory or a certain way of thinking about the case. It is hard to just give it up when you've thought about the case that way for so long. I mean, we spent the entire day yesterday going through how the case has changed from what we thought that particular case we're trying in about a month, how it's changed since when we, and what we initially thought about it. And, you know, it took a lot of back and forth and us going through the evidence that we actually collected and going through what we thought originally, but we decided the best for the case was to change course. Well, even this case that we're hopefully going to try between today when we're recording it and February 1st when this episode comes out, uh, you know, we thought we had a really powerful piece of evidence because it's a workplace injury. Someone was killed, and afterwards, someone came up to the police and said, "Hey, you know, I worked for another city. This same company did something similar, and gave a statement, and had pictures, and we took his deposition, and that was going to be a huge part of our case." Yeah. But when we really started looking at it closely, and we thought, "Well, you know, this is going to cause some confusion. It is kind of different. We're not sure he was 100% right on his allegations." You know, is a jury going to hold us to a higher standard? Like now we have to prove they're bad both times, and they're you know. And we decided that we have a super strong, simple case, and so a lot of the other things that the defendant did wrong, like in the past, and even yeah. things they did wrong that day, that weren't causal or weren't necessary to prove, we decided to simplify the case and change the opening. And a big part of doing that was looking at what our jury instruction was, which sounds elementary because well the jury instruction in this case changed substantially, but originally it was a basic negligence instruction. And, but looking through it and thinking, what is it that I need to prove to establish causation? What are the only things that I need to prove? And then looking at all of our other evidence and saying, well, is there another reason to put this in? And most of the time the answer is no, there's not a compelling reason to put something in that's useless. It causes confusion and makes it complex. Right. And so really story, storyboarding it out and mapping it out and writing your order of proof and saying, here are the things I need to prove. Here are the exhibits. Here are the witnesses. Here are the things that someone needs to say to prove those things. Really simplifies the case. And for a wrongful death case that has some, it's a workplace injury, so there's some complex regulations involved. To try, our goal is to try it in three days. I mean, because we've simplified it so much, but it that didn't happen overnight. <laughs> yeah, and I think one other thing is that you know we we spent a lot of time and work, you especially, making all these graphics, and we printed up like eighty something huge boards to use for trial uh, and then I worked, went up and worked with Sari De Lamont on my opening mm-hmm. uh, and we were talking a little bit about simplifying before but she's like if you say that this is a simple case but then you use 60 boards during your opening your actions are saying it's a complicated case and your, your actions and your words are not congruent mm-hmm. uh, and so you need to do that and so we really worked on we found our on off switch it's like if they did X which was required by law he's alive because they did, didn't do X and they broke the law, he's dead. And, you know, 
everything else is just kind of icing on the cake, but we don't need to get into every other little thing they did wrong because it just confuses them. And it also, right. in fairness, did not cause the death. The other things they did wrong were not causal. They were just other violations. Right, right. And so back to trial, you mentioned one of the things that we did in this case coming up is we prepared a lot of visuals. And in this case, we prepared a lot of visuals. And part of it is because the regulations are are not incredibly simple, so we needed a visual plan to make them simple. Right. Um, that did not happen the week before trial or two weeks before no. trial. And if you have a complex visual plan for your case or you need something like that, that's something that you have to start preparing much further in advance. And just the print, the lead time for printing, because <laughs> right. uh, to print those big boards, uh, and they're and they're not they're thirty by forty inch, which is not a standard size. Mm-hmm. You know, you need a week or two lead time just to get the, the printing done. But then all the graphics and working with them. The other thing we found is that we needed to, to use them with our expert. We needed to bring in the expert and spend a day with them, just going over them. And is this worded right? Is this something you're comfortable with? And then letting the expert learn how to use a visual to teach instead of just sitting there and reading from his report. Right, right. Um, and if you're going to use visuals with any witness at trial, you have to show them the visuals before trial. And practice with them. And practice. People don't know what you intend to do with it or what they're supposed to do with it. Um, you shouldn't assume that everybody can read your mind or that anybody in that courtroom has ever been to trial before and would know what a jury expects. Um, or what's the best way to communicate with the jury. And telling people basic, obvious things to you, it's not basic and obvious to them. And, um, you know, one of one of the things that we always go over with our witnesses of is, where should you be looking when you're answering questions? Yeah. <laughs> Which sounds super basic, like you're talking to the jury, look at the jury. That's not obvious to people, because when you're answering questions, you're looking at the person that you're talking to, usually. And so, you know, preparing people for that kind of an environment is... It's something that you have to do with everybody, even very, very seasoned experts. Absolutely. Each year, the law firm of Callan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now, back to the show. Rehearsal is important, though. I and mean, We talk about, you know, sometimes you don't get to write your opening as early as you want. But I do think it's important for the courtroom not to be the first place you're saying these words to another human being. I mean, whether it's just people in your office, whether it's your family, you know, a pack of dogs, I don't care what it is. But, I mean, you need to practice yeah. giving it. You need to get feedback to people who actually understand you. Uh, and, you know, even on a smaller case, you can do that. I mean, bring in, you know, bring in a 12-pack and order some pizza and call, ask your friends to come in. I mean, yeah. uh, just get friends that are honest, good enough friends to not just tell you, oh, you're awesome. Although being torn apart the, <laughs> not before trial. Right before but, but, but people need to see, I didn't understand you, or, uh, you know, you could have said this a little better, or, you know. Yeah, and frankly, even getting comfortable, you know, I think people assume that trial lawyers are natural public speakers. 
But if you've ever been to a conference, you would know that that's not true. <laughs> um, and so getting comfortable speaking in front of a great, it's only, it, you think in your mind it's only 12 people, but when your entire case relies on whether those 12 people understand everything that you say, the nerves start to creep in. And so getting used to speaking in front of 12 people um, on a really, really important matter um, that means a lot to a client that's sitting in the courtroom watching you, it takes practice. Um, And and it shouldn't be taken for granted. I'm a trial lawyer. I speak in front of people all the time. That's not the same thing as speaking to a jury. It's the same for if you're you're planning on using posters or using a PowerPoint or anything else, practicing with it, it it makes such a difference. And making sure you're comfortable with it and running through with the technology. And I remember the first... It's funny, that was my first seven-figure verdict. uh, And I'd worked really hard to do this PowerPoint for opening. And... I get there, and she calls me, and I spend about a minute, minute and a half, and I can't get the darn thing to work. I don't know if it was a projector or my computer. I couldn't get it to work, and I'm like, well, ladies and gentlemen, jury, I worked hard making a PowerPoint, but you're not going to get to see it, so let's talk about what happened in this case. And, it, you know, it worked out. And, but I could also see, you know, had I not had 40 or 50 trials under my belt at that time, just totally freezing up and freaking out. And yeah. and I've had, a, you know, other instances. I mean, once we had a big media case, a case that was in the media a lot. Oh, okay. And we had a big hearing, and I had my PowerPoint. And actually, what it was is I had the lens cap on the projector, but I was just, I couldn't get it to work, and I just got more and more flustered than, right. you know, than I read on a blog the next day about. <laughs> uh, wow. But, you know, it, but it worked out, but yeah. it's just one of those, if you don't practice it, that's how I've learned that, you know, you got to practice the stuff first. Mm-hmm. You got to go look at the courtroom and see, like, one of the things we wanted to do, we've worked with a guy named Rodney Jew, a litigation uh, strategist. And he's got this great system where you have four easels up, you have four big boards, and you're presenting things in a sequence, and they relate to each other. But you can't fit four easels in this courtroom. It's too small. Right. Uh, and, you know, some courtrooms, we, we have this beautiful big 70-inch TV, you know, but some courtrooms it doesn't fit. And so you have to see, you know, does what we want to use fit in the courtroom? And if not, we need to come up with another plan. Right, right. Um, I think... Um, I. You know, when you're preparing the visuals for trial, Michael, I know you think a lot about this um, because I've tried cases together and I've seen your PowerPoint presentations. But I think one mistake people make is putting too much information on a PowerPoint um, and too much inf- and not giving people a visual break uh, during a PowerPoint. And so one of the strategies that you have to do is when you're practicing with the PowerPoint, figure out when you want the jury to be engaged with you and when do you want them to be engaged in something that's going on on your PowerPoint, your screen, your visual, um, and realizing that they're only going to be engaged with one or the other. They're not going to be able to do both. And the only way that you know when that's going to happen is by practicing in front of real people and seeing where their eyes are drawn, what are they looking at, and are you giving them the time to look at whatever you're showing them, and is it even important that they look at whatever it is that you're showing them? Maybe it's a distraction from being engaged and connected with you. Which is why when you look at my PowerPoints, there are a lot of black slides with nothing on them. Because when I don't want them looking at the screen, I have a black screen. Right. And then I try to have one image, one phrase, one thing at a time when I'm uh, doing a PowerPoint. Now, some of the posters we do are a little more complex, and there's reasons for that. But generally, it's one thing at a time because, you know, I want to... You know, there's nothing worse than having, like, 20 bullet points and then people can't read it. And, right. Um, and people think that they should. I mean, when you're in school 
and you're learning on something that the teacher writes on the whiteboard or that the teacher has on a PowerPoint presentation, the teacher expects you to be reading it and taking notes from that. And so that's what people are trained to do is to read the things that are in front of them. And so it's the same even if you're using a flip chart. If you've drawn this picture on a flip chart and you've written notes on the flip chart and you're moving to a different topic, if it's not relevant to what you're talking about, the jury's going to keep going back to the flip chart. So take it down. Put it on the next page until you're ready to go back to it um, to take their attention off. And that, But that just takes practice of knowing where people are going to look. Um, and it has to be something that's done ahead of time. And the problem is, you know, you want people to be thinking about what you want them to think about if, the, if you happen to catch them while they're paying attention mm-hmm. and not daydreaming. But uh, <laughs> the more different pieces of information you have out at once, the less likely they are. So, you know, you need to have whatever you want them thinking about is what you need to put on and then whatever you want them looking at. Another cool thing I learned from Sari Delamont, I used to think I had to constantly have eye contact with the jury, and now I realize I'm in command. If I if I want them looking at the screen, I need to look at the screen. And then, you know, and then when I'm done with the screen, then I go back and look at them. But it it is so weird to be, like, looking at some of the eye and saying, hey, look over here, and you point somewhere else while you look in the eye. It's yeah. it's very confusing. You don't know what you're supposed to be doing. And so the getting the comfort where, one, I've heard, I had to learn to make eye contact with people and, and form a human connection. But now I'm trying to get to that next level. It's like, I know how to make eye contact. I know when to do it. But I also know, hey, let's go look at something else. This is what I want you to look at. So I'll look at it too, and we'll look at it together, and we'll all be part of the same team. So other than visuals, which in every case, I think every case requires some amount of visuals. You can't just talk for the entire case. The jury will get bored. People will stop listening. And pe- not everybody learns by just hearing something. Um, so I think there's a place for visuals in every trial. How many, how diverse, how complicated they are just depends on the case. Right, and, and that does not mean you have to spend money on visuals in every trial. We, we have tried cases with medical illustrations I found from Google Images yeah. and uh, with some client family photos uh, and with taking the you know medical records, taking the PD, just the PDF and putting it up on a screen, either a projector or a TV screen, and highlighting things from within you know uh, Adobe. Uh, not having spent any money on anything fancy. And we have other cases where we spend a ton of money because the case justifies it and we've done really cool stuff. But, you know, just you don't have to spend money to have visuals. I mean, with with the Internet now, frankly, you can find some really good stuff out there for nothing. And you can do a lot in PowerPoint. I mean, you can make a lot of cool things. I've made a lot of really complex slides and visuals just using PowerPoint. Um, Most of the ones we're going to use for this trial began as PowerPoint slides. Yeah. Um, later, we decided we wanted to have them blown up into big boards, um, so we had to get a graphic illustrator to help us, but all of them started just as regular old PowerPoint slides that I created. So, And yeah. it's just playing with it. It's I mean, just it's... messing with it. Um, it takes time. Um, one of the other things I think that people don't give enough thought to before they go to trial, um, and it seems elementary, but it's you know, even very experienced attorneys I see doing this, um, they don't think about how they're going to get their exhibits admitted oh, yeah. into trial. Um, they have all these great exhibits on their list, and they put everything that's in the file on their exhibit list, um, but not everything is admissible. Right. <laughs> and so thinking about the rules of evidence and who do you need to sponsor something, if you need someone to sponsor something, if it can just get in, when are you going to try to admit it, how is it going to be admitted, Um, What you don't want to be doing is struggling to find cases or the rule of evidence or something like that when you're trying to admit something. You need to have a plan for, if you know that it's questionable, have a case ready or have the rule ready. Um, You know, there's things that we all know get in, um, but there's, there's 
things that I see on people's exhibit lists where I'm thinking, what is your game plan for this? And they don't have one. I mean, yeah. they just put it on the list, you know? And, and I'm, I'm incredibly comfortable with the rules of evidence. I did, you know, I, I did well in evidence in law school. I've tried a lot of cases. I know them very well. I'm not saying that's to brag, but even then, I think about what what are the things that are going to probably have an objection, and what is my plan, and then I have like a little outline, like a on a piece of paper, you know, this is admissible, roll whatever, roll whatever, this is my plan for arguing why it's admissible. So like, you know, we have one, it's a business record, it's a public record, and the statements that would otherwise be here say within it are statements of a party opponent. And these are the roll numbers, and this is the text of the roll I need, and if it's something where there's a case or two, I will write the cases, and I'll then have the cases printed, and paperclip like you know we have we have one about whether osha citations and reports are admissible right i have uh, a, a series of folders with different case law for different topics that right. i think are going to come up because you know it's going to come up and you know you don't want to just argue off the top of your head you want to be able to hand the judge a case you want to be able to cite the rule and don't count on memorizing it i mean you just write it down yeah and the most important thing at trial is when you do get the objection you're competent to proceed accordingly you're either confident that it's going to come in or you're confident that you can do it without it. So yeah. you're ready either way, um, but you've thought about it. And so that right. you're not totally thrown off in trial where you're scrambling to find a rule, the judge is looking at you, the jury is irritated because you're taking this huge break trying to find something. And I mean, and then you're stressed out and sweating because you can't figure it out right, right away. And um, that's what you don't want. That's and, what you want to And avoid. I'll give an example. Like there's, for some reason, in, in Texas at least, an expert report is hearsay and it's not admissible. And I have seen defense lawyers, they always put on their exhibit list, and I guess maybe some people don't object or some people just don't try that many cases so the defense lawyers aren't, don't realize that. And I've seen in a deposition where the guy's just taking the guy through. So in your report where you wrote this, what did you mean? And what was the next part of your report? And they're just asking about this report that the jury's not going to see. Right. And it's the most confusing, worthless testimony yeah. when they do that. Whereas if they had thought about their things, like, what is your opinion on this? What is the basis for that opinion? Why do you think that? You know, what is the proof of that? would have been such a more effective way to have presented the testimony. Right, right. So coming up with the order of witnesses is something that we usually don't do until very, very close to trial. Part of it is because of a scheduling, scheduling issues that you might have with experts or certain witnesses, so you have to put them in where you put them in. But you want to make still make sure that the case can flow wherever that expert is going to pop up or wherever that witness is available. Um, and so that's something usually we leave till probably the week before it just depends if you have a lot of experts and uh you know you need to start you can't wait till the week before because you, you've got right. scheduling issues and our paralegals we just tell them all to show up the first day of trial <laughs> right. and that won't work uh so that you know i think it really depends but in most cases you do have to wait a little later because you don't know for sure what the order is how long people are going to take you also don't know what day you're actually going to start how long is this judge going to work each day and your experts have to have some flexibility on that and if they're not willing to they just need to work for somebody else uh, but yeah I think the order of witnesses is really important yeah it is important um, th there's a couple of things that you need to think about um, there's certain witnesses that you can begin in one day and end in another day and it will be fine um, there's other witnesses that it will be totally confusing to the jury they'll forget what was said they'll lose track you have a good sequence and then the next day they come back and they've forgotten everything and you know so it's you have to think about those things how long is a witness going to take um, usually when we have depo, deposition video clips, I write down how long the clip is so that if I, if I need 15 minutes to stall till another witness arrives, <laughs> I know which clips we can play. Right. Right. So that you know, or I know what witness I can call. Well, it's, you know, 
the person, my plaintiff's brother, and he was going to tell these three stories, so it'll take 20 minutes. Why don't I just call him in the meantime while I'm waiting for so-and-so to arrive? So having an idea about kind of where you can move things around if you need to in an emergency, because things pop up in trial, and you, you can't yeah. assume you're going to be able to do it the way that you want. <laughs> but I think it's important to start strong. Start with a witness. It's going to tell as much of your story as possible, but also you want to start with a witness that's not very impeachable, that's going to testify well, that they're not going to have a great cross on that witness. You know, if possible, I'd like to start by proving the defense, the defendant did something wrong before I start talking about harms and losses. Mm-hmm. Now, ideally, I would have a, you know, let's say you have a catastrophic crash. You can have the police officer talk about what they saw, why it's the defendant's fault, and about the harms and losses after that, and, mm-hmm. you know, all in one witness. That would be ideal. You know, a lot of the cases I've tried, the harms and losses aren't obvious that day at the scene. They start hurting later, and yeah. it develops over time. Uh, so that doesn't always work. But I think it's important, though, to start strong. Sometimes I start with the defendant because, yeah. you, you know, you could do a cross with them and, and, and prove what you need. Sometimes, though, you have to start with an expert to set what are the roles, what are the standards, and, and to prove up the learned treatises and other publications you need to effectively cross mm-hmm. a defendant. It just depends. But I think it's important to think about that. Uh, the other thing is think about what's the jury's energy throughout the day. So, you know, at the beginning of trial, that's when they're going to be the most attentive. You know, later in the afternoon, that post-lunch crash. So let's say you have a defendants all the time call their, they, they do video depositions of their medical experts. Well, you're planning out your trial, maybe the second or third day of trial. You can, you know, you have some good points you made during theirs too. So you'll present their person by video, maybe two in the afternoon when everyone's falling asleep. And then your good, your 30 minutes of good stuff's going to go first. And then they're going to have the video, their hour of video running on after that. Yeah. That, that might not be a bad idea. Just, you know, thinking of the jury's energy and who's going to hear what and when. And, you know, but definitely, I, you know, and other people, Andy Young disagrees with me. He's been on this podcast, and he thinks you should start with a witness about what great people these were and stuff. But I respectfully disagree with Andy. I think in most cases, we're going to look like we're trying to get their sympathy, and we're going to, uh, we're going to arouse suspicion from the jury if we don't go prove that they are blameworthy before we start talking about what, what went wrong. Um, and I think then on that note, you start strong, but you also have to end strong. What yes. you don't want to do is sit down on your weakest witness. Absolutely. Um, and so we usually are very careful about who we select to go last. And it's frankly usually not the plaintiff. Um, it's usually someone to talk about the harm that's been caused, right? It's the end of your story. This is what harm has caused. This is what I'm hoping that my friend, my family member, my coworker can get back to in the future. And you leave on a note of hope, but you also get some testimony about that this is this is their life now. And that's something I've learned over time, because I used to always call the plaintiff last, and my logic was start with what the defendant did wrong, then get all the lay witnesses to bolster that my person's really hurt before I put them on, so they'll, they'll be more believable. But then I would always end with all the cross-examination on every little inconsistency in the medical record, every little thing you said different than your depot. So, you know, I like now to sandwich the plaintiff in there and just have some people showing the plaintiff's really hurt, then the plaintiff, and then ending with their best witness or two about how they are really hurt to diffuse any of that cross. Right, right. So thinking about the order of the witnesses is something important, something you should do in advance. You don't want to do it the, I mean, you don't want to, not know who you're going to call every single day. Um, but you have to be flexible, too. You don't know what the schedule is going to allow for. You don't know what kind of emergencies are going to pop up. People are late to court all the time. They can't find parking, whatever. And so the 
you have to be flexible and you have to know where you can be flexible on those things and where you need to ask because you can only get so many favors during during a trial. Right. So you need to know is this witness who who are my favor witnesses? Who are the ones where I say, Judge, can we take a coffee break so that we can we can find find this witness? This is my next witness. I need this person now. Yeah. Right. But you, you only get so many of those. During but when you have that loyal friend or family member that's there to provide emotional support, then you can have them as the auxiliary. Like, yeah. I put you in when I can get you in. Right. Like in case I have a, a gap or something, and then if not, you'll be one of my last witnesses. Right. Right. So you have a backup plan for emergencies, um, but. But knowing what that is is, I think, important, and it gives you it gives you calm during trial because you yeah. know that you have a plan. I think knowing that you have a plan makes trial go so much more smoothly, but it also takes so much pressure off of you because you have to be on the entire trial, and being on takes a lot of energy. <laughs> Let's talk about that. I mean, we we talked about we were talking about the logistics of trial, but there's a mental, emotional, spiritual part of preparing for and being present for trial. Yeah, I think it's different for everybody. For me, it's very important that I feel prepared so that everything is organized the way that I like it. Um, I've looked the Friday before at all of my boxes. I have all of my books that I want, and they're tabbed with the things that I want. I have everything organized the way that I like it, and I've confirmed that the Friday before trial. Um, And then during the weekend before trial, I really try to get some stuff done maybe on Saturday because I can't help myself a couple of things but a couple of kind of no-brainer things maybe go back in and look at the boxes a little more make sure they're organized or maybe pull a couple of cases that I thought of where I said you know what it wouldn't hurt to have this case with me but nothing that's really really strenuous maybe practice the opening practice the board ire um, and then the day before trial make some kind of attempt to not do too much <laughs> um, at least try to take a half day, if not the full day, um, to be with your family or to do something that you enjoy doing. Um, Just to kind of relax, be in a good place, try to go to bed at a reasonable hour, eat a nice meal, decompress, um, and then that way when you're there at trial, you're ready to go. You're not exhausted from having pulled all-nighters all weekend. Um, I think the worst thing that you can possibly do is show up for the time that you have to be the most dynamic in trial, which is Vord Iyer, and you'd be totally exhausted because you pulled all-nighters the, yeah. the week before. And I could do that when I was in my 20s. I cannot do that at 49, closing in quickly on 50. Uh, I try to take a full day off the weekend before. It is hard. You end it's up hard. looking at something, but I try really hard to not do a lot of work. You know, For me, it's like the, the day before, there's usually witnesses and other people I have to calm down and talk to. But so, like, we're going to start a trial. Hopefully, hopefully, we're picking a jury on Monday afternoon. Right. Uh, so I'm going to try not to work tomorrow on Saturday. I'm going to do my very best to just take the day off, relax. If I, you know, maybe take care of something on another case just to, so it doesn't weigh on me. Right. Uh, but, you know, I need that. because, And I learned that, you know, partially for trying cases, but actually of all weird things, marathon training. Uh, mm-hmm. When you run a marathon or half marathon, you know, you got to get up to you run far enough to where you can run a marathon. And, you know, my train, my trainer had me go up to 22 miles like a few weeks before the marathon but then you start tapering down i mean you do all this you do all this stuff and you're building up this stuff for your body but then you gotta let your body heal and rest so that you can actually perform the day of the race mm-hmm. uh and i think it's the same thing for our minds and our spirits that you know we do all this work to get ready for trial if we don't kind of like okay we're gonna there's not much more that we can get done the, the, the additional prep of working all day Saturday, or working like when you're in trial, like working till two or three in the morning every right. night. 
the whatever additional you gain from that you lose in the bad performance and the exhaustion and the mental fog mm -hmm. and so my thought is like next week we're ready yeah i don't need to work tomorrow it's not going to make a difference maybe it would make me feel like i'm well i'm doing something i don't need to work late every night i know what i'm going to ask i'm, I'm prepared yeah. and so my plan is to do my best to be in bed i might not fall asleep right away right but to be in bed uh yeah at a decent hour and at some point you just have to recognize that the case is what the case is discovery has passed yeah whatever you new idea you think of it's too late yeah so you have to try the case <laughs> that you have and you're ready to try the case that you have and thinking of new ideas now is not it's not going to help you it's just going to make you think of all the crap you should have <laughs> done before and that's not right. helpful the case is what it is and you're going to try the case that you have coming up with new ideas is not helpful well like new theories and new right yeah, but, right but new yeah, things you right. wish you would have done new depositions you yeah. wish you would have taken new records you wish you would have had it, it it's not only going to make it worse absolutely and although you do something i mean i have woken up at three in the morning with an idea that's worked i mean you know i was in a trial i woke up at three in the morning and it was like almost like a voice in my head saying look at the expert cv and i went and i mean at three in the morning i looked and when and it, it looked like he was not actually a member of a society that he was a member of right uh and then you know we checked it out the next morning and found out he really wasn't we called and then found a way to use that effectively in cross-examination and uh you know but that was just but i didn't step one night I, I i looked at it i said that's cool and then i went back to sleep and then got to work on the morning yeah but I, i'm not going to stay, stay up all night researching defense experts i mean that's that's what you do well in advance right right and one of the things speaking of experts that's one of the things that i think that you have to do well in advance of trial and in advance of your discovery deadline because if there's things that you want to use there is an argument that if you didn't produce it, you can't use it, even if it's impeachment evidence. So if there's certain literature that you want to use against them or things from their past, deposition, testimony, affidavits that they've given, better to have it in advance. And then whittle through it, create your expert folder, your expert cross folder with all the stuff that you want, and then that way it, it's easy for you by the right. time it comes to trial. You have an outline, you have the visuals you want to use, you have the articles that you think are the best the literature whatever it is that you're whatever kind of expert it is right um and you can get in and you can get out because the worst thing that you can do in front of a jury is get in the weeds and then with the expert on the medical or on the science and have your ass handed to you in front of the jury I mean, absolutely that's not that's not helpful for your case and it makes and it makes you lose confidence i mean you should have a written out i believe almost every single cross-examination at trial should be something that you've written out in advance. Um, and the reason for that is because if you haven't written it out, you don't have a clear strategy, you're not going to get what you want, and you're going to hem-haw around, and by the time that you actually get to what you want, the jury's not listening anymore. Yeah, and, and how you write out is different. Like, I think you write out each question mm -hmm. uh, where I write out points. Right. Uh, but it's still, we still both have a plan. Yeah. Just... It, it's different for everybody, but having a very clear plan yeah. is what's important. And for me, because of the way that I ask cross-examination questions, basically, which are sentences right. that sound like questions when I ask them. That's what you're supposed um, to do. <laughs> I actually write out the sentence because I, that I want them to agree with. But for um, me, as I was being present is so important, mm -hmm. uh, is that I just write out the points I want to make. Yeah. But I still have a plan. And, and that's why people ask me all the time, well, do you have an outline for this? Do you have an outline for that? Like... I could show you what I wrote, but it won't make any sense to you. Yeah. I think, though, now, um, I mean, me and you trying cases together, I think yeah. you write more detailed outlines now 
Yeah, because I want you to read because them. Because you want me to look at them <laughs> and to know where you're at in the cross so that if we need visuals or we need to pull something, I know what you're doing yeah. and what the plan is. But if you you know, if you know, have a partner in trial, you need to make sure that they're on the same page as you. Yeah. And so I know now you write more detailed outlines so that I can be with you and know what you need next and where we're at. And I also, I'm just generally a better prepared lawyer than I was 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, that's experience. And frankly, it's having a smaller docket and having right. the time to be prepared. The other thing on experts is just, you know, meeting with your expert well in advance to make sure that they will go along with your trial theme and trial story and not decide to go rogue and yeah. come up with their own. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, it happens to everybody. So this happens with lawyers. It happens with experts. It happens with everybody. Lawyers think that they're doctors because they've read all the medical literature. The same way that doctors that testify all the time think that they're lawyers because they've testified so many times. It's the same phenomenon that right. happens for both of us. Um, and so you have, knowing that that's the case, you know, you need to make sure that they understand that you're the lawyer, you're in charge, they need to follow your lead. Right. And if they're not going to, you need to know that well in advance because what you don't want is someone going rogue on the stand. Yep. Last topic I want to get is, you know, trying cases with other people. I'm going to be honest, other than you, it is much easier for me to try a case by myself than it is with someone else. Mm-hmm. Now, I still do it, but you have to really be on the same page. And there's nothing worse when, when you're trying a case and your co-counsel is coming up with their own ideas and all of a sudden you're trying, you're telling two different stories. Right. You're trying two different cases. Yeah, I think in every trial there has to be a captain. Um, and I think the reason that me and you can work so well together is because when we try cases, I'm fine if you're the captain. I don't need the ego boost. I don't need the glory. Well, frankly, to me, it's both of our glory if we win. Right. Um, and you feel the same way. And I don't care if you're the captain. And people that I have tried cases with um, that are not you, I've made it clear that I'm the captain. And right. so it can work It can work that way, too. I mean, When, I, when they will follow. When they will. <laughs> I've, had it, I've had it not work, too, where, yeah, where yeah. I've had other people think they're also the captain. I mean, you can't have two captains. You can't. Um, and so if you're going to try cases with someone, there has to be a very clear delineation of the roles. Um, and we actually, me and you, we write it out, who's doing what. And right. so there's no question that you're doing Bordire and opening, I'm doing the cross of this person, I'm doing the direct of that person, you're doing the cross. Of, we have it all written in a very succinct way, and we don't, we don't stray from it. That's what it is, and we don't change our minds, because then it throws a big wrench in all of it. And if you have a big fundamental disagreement with the captain about how to try the case, mm-hmm. about the theory, about the themes, about the time to have that is after it's over. Right. After when you're decompressing, you can't be arguing about it or stressing about it during the trial. You just through the more experienced lawyer typically mm-hmm. makes the call. Yeah. And if you don't agree with it, I mean, don't sit there and argue with it. Don't cry to go show off and, and go rogue while you're doing it because I've had that happen. And it doesn't work. Yeah, the worst thing is to be a divided front. <laughs> yeah, and it's worse when you're trying cases with lawyers at other firms, and you know they have one client and you have another, and it just really, right. it can really cause problems because, you know, we had one case that almost went to trial, and you know we would we had our way that we wanted to try the case, and we would make all our points without yeah. being mean, uh, and then somebody else would go up and they would just beat the crap out of this witness. And just create so much sympathy for the poor person, right. uh, you know, which is not what we're trying to do. And we have to try to get the jury mad at the company, not against, not the low-level employees that weren't given the tools and training and education mm. they need to do their job. Uh, and so it's just really tough. And I don't know how you'd do that other than you try, but lawyers have such big egos. <laughs> yeah. 
You have to, I mean, you try and you do the best that you can, but it is a problem with lawyers and, and yeah. egos. And um, the, the problem is that nobody likes to be the second fiddle right. if they're not appreciated. But yeah. people don't mind being the support team if they're appreciated. Yeah. I mean, that's the... That's the I've tried to tell lawyers that have other people in cases. Now, it's not very nice. Like, just sit back and let me make you money. <laughs> but, you know, that's not always well, it's not always well received. <laughs> but it's just like, I got this, yeah. you know, just yeah. don't, don't mess me up. I've got this. You're going to make a lot of money. Go spend your time working on something else and let me yeah. handle it. <laughs> I mean, and frankly, I mean, when attorneys that co-counsel with me tell me something like that, I don't take it well. And I, know. I don't believe them, and I, I say, well, too bad. I'm running the show. And right. um, <laughs> you know, I mean, that that's so. I can see how it, other people would feel about that. And I don't attorneys do that to me. And, and I don't always word it that way either. But, <laughs> um, but uh, honestly, and it, it 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 is problematic though when you have different people with different theories in the same trial. You know, we've had case, we've had co counsel, we've been able to work very well with together and yes. do focus groups together and come up with a plan. But we've also had other people that are just. They're just going to do what they're going to do, even though it's incredibly ineffective and they've never been successful with it before, but that's what they're going to do. One other thing that we should talk about before we leave um, about trial prep is uh, decompression after trial. So this is something that we don't talk about a lot, but I really felt it this week. So one of the one of the things that happens to me at trial is I get a lot of energy and a lot of adrenaline and a lot of excitement around a trial, a lot of nerves. It's all kinds of things rolling around. Um, and then when we didn't go this week, I really fell hard. Like I just took a really big jump off a cliff with my energy and my enthusiasm for things and my attitude. Um, I was just mad and grumpy and <laughs> just not having it. I just didn't, I just wasn't having it. And I think that no matter whether you lose a trial or you win a trial, you have to recognize that there's so much energy and so much of yourself that you put into it that you have to give yourself time um, to be with that energy and be with that feeling in order to move on to your next thing. Absolutely. Uh, and you just, look, if you tried a case, you did a lot of extra work. You weren't working a 40-hour week. Mm -hmm. You were working weekends. You were working nights at some point. Uh, so take a day off or half day or whatever you needed. I mean, or, or come in and just talk to people and relax. Just You have to... Again, it's management of energy. You cannot be 100% on working full blast every day. And it's hard because when you're in trial, all the other shit piles up. Mm -hmm. And you feel like, okay, now I'm going to try. I'm not going to get all this other stuff done. Get away today. You you need to take care of yourself, you know. And it's funny. I have something similar. My ritual for wins and losses isn't that different, well, except it's more private on, win, on losses. So a win, what do we do? We go out to eat. We have some wine. We have some champagne. And uh, we celebrate it, and then we go on to the next one the next day. Mm -hmm. You know, once we, we no, we'll come in late, we'll sleep late, maybe take a day off, and then yeah. get back to work. It's done. When I lose a case, uh, either that night or the next night, I'll open up a really expensive bottle of wine at home, and I will. I don't drink it all by myself, but I'll drink a considerable amount of it, and my wife might help me. Uh, and I've said goodbye to the case. <laughs> I've shown myself I can still afford a bottle of red wine, uh, and that my world's not over. And then I'll sleep late, and eventually get to the office and I open up a new file and I start on another one and that case is gone. Mm -hmm. It's buried. It's, it's no more. Yeah. I think also telling war stories, um, this is something that, uh, it took me a while to realize how attached I would get to the, to cases and I've lost cases of course, and won cases, but 
for me, I take the losses very, very hard. Um, and telling war stories about the cases cannot come the next day or even the next week for a case that you lose. No. Um, and there's something to be learned about every case that you lose. And there's something to be learned from your for your colleagues. I mean, I know for our firm, we talk about the losses just like we talk about the wins. What can we learn? But it's also something that you have to be respectful of whoever the attorney is that tried it. Even if, even if it's a win, whether it's a win or a loss, sometimes it takes some time to be able to talk about it without being emotional about it because you put so much of yourself into it. Yeah, and you're not, when you're, when you're that raw, you're not going to learn the lessons that need to be learned. Right. And quite frankly, when you're on the high end euphoria right. from a big win, you're not going to learn. You're, right. you're just, you're so happy you won, you're not going to be talking about what. Right. And so at some point later in time, whether it's days, weeks, for everybody it's different, but you have to reevaluate the case, see where things went wrong, where things went right if you won, and even if you won, where things went wrong, right? Yeah. There's cases that we've won that things still went wrong during, so yeah. that you want to try to learn from it for the next time. But giving yourself some space before you start to evaluate yourself, I think, is important. Yeah, and I usually don't. I should, and I should be a bigger man and do more of that, but when I lose a case, it's I, I let it die, and I go on with my life. Not that I don't learn things, but I, I don't dwell on my losses because a lot, you can do a lot to make yourself have a better chance of winning. You can definitely do things that make yourself lose, but if you do it all right, all you're doing is you're putting yourself in the best position to win possible. Uh, it's like if you're an NFL quarterback playing in the Super Bowl, you're one of the best of the best. You've worked hard, but so's the other guy. And only one of you is going to win. Uh, and it's not within your control 100%. You can't control what the referee sees. You can't control what the receiver is going to catch the ball. You can't control. I mean, there's a million things you can't control that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't control how your defense is going to play. Same for trial. I mean, we don't control We don't control the facts. We don't control how the judge is going to be. We don't pick who the jury is 100% and what their prior life experiences are. And we don't get to pick what the defense is going to do. Mm-hmm. And so when we value ourselves as human beings and lawyers by what happens in the jury room, we can really be twisted both ways. We can get it totally unrealistic, out of control ego when we win, and we can be way too hard on ourselves and down and scared to do it again when we lose. Mm -hmm. So it's that 100% commitment to the work, but detaching and not that you don't want to win with every fiber in your body and it doesn't hurt like hell to lose, but you cannot say, I am a bad lawyer because I didn't win this case. I can say I'm a bad lawyer because I didn't prove up my evidence or because I didn't you know, do something right. I didn't practice well enough, but not because of the... If I did, if I did what I was supposed to do and it's just a tough case or it just wasn't my day, then you just got to shake the dust off and go get them next time. Hopefully that's not the conversation that we're going to be having next weekend. Hopefully it's going to you be. You know, the... <laughs> I hope not. But I think that we've committed ourselves to the work, like you said, and not to the outcome. While the outcome is important, um, we can't control that. We can we control can. the work that we've done. But we're going to try the hell out of that case. We will. And hopefully we'll have some news. If we actually get reached, we've been ready to try this case multiple times. But hopefully this time we're really going to go. And uh, for those of you who will have listened to the Facebook Live, you will know whether or not we won or not because my plan is to do it from the courtroom <laughs> at lunch. Oh my gosh. So uh, we will see you then. Uh, on, thank you for joining us today, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. 
Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're listening to this episode on a mobile device, please click on Ratings and Review and leave our show a five-star rating and write a review. And if you're listening to this episode from our website, please leave a five-star rating on the episode page. We'd love to reach more listeners, and doing this will help more attorneys find this podcast. You can also visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list so you can stay updated on our new episodes. I promise we won't spam you. And thanks to your feedback, we've improved our podcast website. There's now a resources tab that you can click that shows you all the books we've mentioned on our podcast. If you have a Facebook account, please send us a request to join a private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our guests before an episode airs, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind-the-scenes moments. I love to hear from all of you, and our Table Talk episodes are based solely on questions from our fans. So please continue to send us emails at podcast at triallawyernation.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.